0: For those of you who don't know, Tori is the founder and CEO of Demotics, uh, which is one of the first experiments in citizen journalism. I'm not going to uh, say a lot about it because is going to talk us through it, about what exactly Demotics does. And then he's going to talk to the title of um, the seminar, which is Collaboration as the Future of News Generation and Distribution. And uh, we'll have time for discussions mm-hmm. and questions and to finished about... Three um, thirty. Apologies for being late. I got stuck on the traffic jam coming down to London. I hope I'm not, I haven't wasted too much of your time. Um, thank you very much, James, for introducing me. Thank you for having me here. Um, I was here being lectured at about 12 years ago, so I expect Cuban to come back and be on the other end of the table. Um, what I want to do is, is briefly talk to you about sort of three as- three aspects of this what we've talked about as a title, which is collaboration as as a future journey. Um Very quickly, I'm going to introduce uh, Demotic, so that you, uh, I'm sure most of you have no idea what we are and what we do and how we work. So I'll very briefly introduce that. Um, then I want to talk about um, collaboration in uh, news generation as well as in news distribution and what that does to uh, news. New stories, news telling. And thirdly, I want to very briefly touch on Egypt because it's in the front of everybody's minds, and maybe that will open up a conversation about what's, what kind of trends we've been seeing now uh, across what is one of the most extraordinary periods in the Middle East but in the very long time in the Middle East. Um, so if that's okay, I'll start with just explaining what demotic is. Uh, the name comes from demotic, which means of the people. Um, and um, and it's most usually referred to in the context of language. Uh, you talk about Demotic Greek and Demotic Egyptian, the two languages which helped decode the Rosetta Stone and the hieroglyphs uh, by Champollion, which is where the name comes from. Um, most people don't know that, would never figure it out, and can't pronounce the name. So um, if ever you need to brand a company, don't come to me, um, because I don't know how to do it. Um, Demotics. the idea behind Demotics is very simple. Um, my, I've been uh, involved in journalism and publishing and uh, politics for about, about 10 years and had watched, as I'm sure all of you have as well, a mass shrink in the, um, the depth and breadth of global news reporting. Um, there's been uh, some say 100,000 jobs lost in UK and US, uh, print and broadcast journalism. Um, over the last three, four years, so um, and, and over the, over a longer period that's been uh, that's just the tail end of that trend this has been going on for a very long time. Um, foreign bureaus have been shut. I don't need to reel off how bad the statistics are, but just to put things in perspective, last time we checked the BBC didn't have a full-time staff in Latin America. Um, when I was in New York, just after Haiti, Talking to the NBC news teams over Haiti, they got their um, they got their Beijing correspondence to Haiti for two weeks and didn't have a single staff correspondent between London and LA the other way around. Um, so uh, we've seen a, a, a terrible shrink. And um, what sort of emerged for, for me was that um, there there was this in a sense unstoppable trend to, uh, against the professional journalists functioning in the professional staff capacity uh, that they'd always worked in prior. Um, But there was a possibility with the kind of technological tools at our disposal to jump in and fill some of that gap. Um, And what we were trying to essentially do was to figure out whether we could build a virtuous circle, based around a business model, but a virtuous circle, whereby, one, we would create a platform for people anywhere uh, to upload their stories, images, videos, uh, social media or whatever um, which we would then bring onto to Demotics and publish if it was original having verified uh, and publish on Demotics and then take the best of that content and ship it out to the mainstream media, essentially like an alternative um, an alternative AP or Reuters, a grassroots AP or Reuters our clients New York Times CNN, Guardian, whoever it might be pay us for the content that we send to them we take 50% of that to run demotics, and 50% goes back to our contributors. Thereby, we hope, incentivizing them to get more involved in the whole business of journalism. So that was the idea. We would create that um, on, one, on one hand, we could get properly stuck in and make a real, have a real impact on freedom of speech issues. And on the other, we could, um, we could try and fill uh, a particular kind of gap in global news coverage. That's what we do. Um, we've been g- we launched in January two thousand and nine. Um, in June two thousand and nine, we had a pay. we were front and center of everything that happened in Iran. We had two two of our pictures from the, in three in three days were on the front page of the New York Times. Um, we've been very involved now again in Egypt and Libya um, and Tunisia across the Middle East. Um, we've been very involved in um, these mass participatory uh, events like the G20 here, or UK Uncut, whatever it might be. So we range from the very domestic in the UK through to, through to uh, the global. We've got now about 4,000 active contributors in about, and we think we think um, every UN-accredited um, country, um, and some and some not. Um, so that's demotics. I'm happy to ask questions about that later, but I just want to put you into some pictures of what, what we do. Um, <coughs> What I really want to talk about is is ignore all of that and talk about the trends that I see now in the way collaboration works uh, and and how I see collaboration as the future of news gathering and news distribution. Um, So first, um, I'm going to talk about if you want normals and professional journalists, because I hate the word citizen journalist. It has this image of uh, the kind of people who strung up Robespierre at the Consistoire and this sort of heavily activist, politically engaged uh, demographic, which is only a small fraction of the demographic currently engaged in news telling, news correcting, news distribution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, what I. First off, I want to make it very clear that in in terms of news gathering and this collaboration, I'm talking about. I'm talking about two kinds. I'm talking about collaboration between normals, if you want, so individuals not involved in the news in the, in the professional news uh, capacity, um, on the one hand, and also the interaction between normals, lay people, citizens, whatever, and pros. My sense is that the work that is currently being done by the normals in terms of building interest communities, whether it's through social media uh, or even even in, in, in the flesh, their engagement in um, their engagement in uh, not just uh, creating uh, communities, which they do, but also in telling stories and building interest communities out of those, um, is is exploding. I think that that is a, a trend which will continue uh, to develop. Um, but I think that right now, um, and for the next few years, what we're really going to see is an ever closer coordination between professional journalists and the um, and in man industry, in manual industry, wherever they are. Um, that works already in a number of ways. Both of these things work in a number of ways. If I've got time, I'd like to talk very briefly about how I see citizens, if you want, normals uh, working together, and just give you some, some examples of the way that normals without or citizens without professional journalists have built stories and have pushed stories uh, very powerfully over the last few years. I'll give, I'll do this chronologically. Um, in 2005, the Kifeya movement, which is the was the Enough movement in Egypt, um, which is very much the precursor to what's been going on now, uh, mobilised almost entirely across Flickr. It was their me- their method of choice. I see you nodding. Um, but the, uh, it's fascinating, there's been a real change in, in the work, what tech has been used by, by groups of people to mobilize. So with, in 2005, in Tafaya, that was very much Flickr. In 2006, with the Lebanon Israel war, we saw the emergence of blogger. Suddenly, the blogosphere in 11 exploded. They had, there had been nobody there. Suddenly, everybody had this tool, and these people were real, uh, actually became, became sort of heroes. Um, in 2007, with the Pakistan Lawyers Movement, uh, Iftikhar um when Musharraf uh, kicked him out of the Supreme Court, um, the lawyers movement coordinated itself and news was relayed by this organization almost entirely through SMS. A little bit on Facebook, because Facebook was picking up then, but very, very powerfully on SMS. Um, 2009, you have Iran, which is, uh, which is Facebook, with Mousavi's profile, squillions of hits, squillions of friends, really used as a mouthpiece for that particular movement's position, and, and of course Twitter, um, Twitter, which amazingly managed to keep a news story which had not been updated for two weeks in everybody's minds as far as there were no professional journalists on the ground, like, nobody really knew what was going on but there was this enormous firestorm of, of tweeting which kept this story front and centre of, of, of all our minds and of course now with Egypt which for me certainly as a news gatherer represents really the first time that Twitter has come totally into its own so I'll talk about that in a minute so those are examples of citizens coming together and building news stories without the help of anybody around them. That's no—that is—that is—that's uh, part of the story. The much more powerful story is the way that uh, citizens collaborate with mainstream media, and mainstream media use citizens to uh, to build their stories. Um, I'll talk very, very briefly about what I assume, about how news gathering uh, about, about, about news gathering this capacity. There is, of course. Um, at its most basic, I don't know a single journalist today who doesn't use Facebook and Twitter as a way of getting in stories, um, either asking questions or looking for subjects or um, it's, it's sort of lazy Google if you want, um, to a distinct demographic. Um, and that's at its most basic. but actually um, what we see, what I see now most powerfully is that um, what's happening sort of top down when journalists uh, professional journalists are going out and asking, Um, asking social media uh, for answers, for help. They're actually asking communities. And it's that community which comes in support of the professional journalists to tell stories. Um, There is, dead simple, a kind of collective accountability created simply by the comment stream on any any online article. Um, As people build up be very, very careful of professional journalists writing articles uh, online which have their facts wrong. A friend of mine has done it, and I've seen hundreds of comments coming in it they, They've really forced the kind of an accountability, which is great. But back in the day, obviously, you needed to be a, a trade union leader to have a letter published in the garden, and a, and a law to have a letter published in the telegraph. Now, really, anybody can do it, and, it, and, it, and it's opened up that conversation. But two, um, these kind of participatory projects the most famous of which is, the, is I think, probably the Guardian's uh, expenses scandal widget, um, where, and these, these are two different modes of journalism. The Telegraph bought these documents um, and then drip-fed drip them out. The Guardian eventually got most of these documents and the data feed, dumped it on a widget, and said, right, you guys go and figure out how to crunch it. They had 27,000 citizens get involved and parse that, 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 that data. And that experience, has given them the, the confidence to continue doing this further down the line. So um, one, of the, one of the bits of the Guardian's website, which I enjoy most, is the data blog. They just, they, daily, they dump large Excel spreadsheets down for people to get stuck into and fiddle around with, um, and generate stories off the back of which they do. That is, that's collaboration. Um, and the third is, um, uh, is, is I, what I want to talk about, is, is a little example of, and again, it ties in back to Egypt, a little example of how you could imagine actually deeper investigative journalism work in this collaboration between top-down pros and, um, and, and this mass of people behind them. On uh, on the 7th of February, I'm sure many of you know this, but on the 7th of February, um, uh, somebody called el Ronim, who was the um, who's the Google marketing manager, who set up the We are all Sayyid. Facebook page uh, in Egypt. 2010. Um, he launched his page. Exactly. Yeah. So he, he so he launched his, this. has been going on for I, I, about a, a year, year and a half, now. about eighteen yeah. months. Yeah, exactly. Years uh, and a yeah. half. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Um, which which many people felt, you know, played a role in the build up and in the kind of the, the mobilisation of, 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 of people in Egypt. Um, on the on, on the seventh February, having disappeared for twelve days in Cairo, he was. Suddenly, his Twitter account, which is at Ronin, G-H-O-N-I-N, suddenly said, uh, freedom is a bless that deserves fighting for it. It's not great English, but um, he spent 12 days in solitary confinement, most likely. And um, this came out to an enormous explosion of tweets. I mean, thousands and thousands of retweets of this document. The process here is interesting. At 8.10, I I watched this happen. At 8.10, somebody called Andrew Carvin, who's the chief digital strategist at NPR, um, and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a friend um, who's added this note of caution and wrote, uh, just got this tweet from where is account, and retweeted it. So you see a professional journalist coming in and going, hang on, hang on, hang on, let's just, let's, let's, let's figure out how this is working. At 8.30, somebody called Habib Haddad, who's a Lebanese-American uh, tech entrepreneur and knows the community very, very deeply uh, in Egypt, writes, ecstatic, tweetless, just confirmed it, Ghanim is back, Two minutes later, just got off the call where I live wife. Not sure I ever heard someone that happy and emotional. What a ride it was. And late 33, three minutes after that, CNN leads with Google executive released in Egypt. What you have there is a, a, a lovely little um, micro example of what one might imagine being able to take place at a macro level. Um, and what, what it says to me is that there is a possibility potentially for marshalling enormous numbers of people to do deep, deep investigative journalism. Um, and what it also expre- expresses very clearly is that um, the kind of hierarchies that we always assumed never existed in this morass mass of, of citizens um, uh, all fighting around each other actually exists. It's not just professional journalists; um, the rest actually these authority structures exist, as we all know, within Facebook, within Twitter, uh, within Google, and actually in personal relationships as well um, on Twitter, very simple some people have 10 followers, some people have a million followers um, these people work as nodes and within those nodes there are people who have responsibility and have considered, have authority in certain areas so you end up building a chain sort of a, an authority pyramid which goes starts from professional journalism if you want and then drops down uh, across many layers into social media but also, as this example shows the other way up How much time do I have left? Keep going. Great. So um, what I tried to talk about there is is news gathering and how news gathering is changing because of this participatory element. Um, What uh, very briefly also mentioned, news distribution. Um, Not very long ago, newspaper editors used to get to choose what was on their front page. they still get to choose what's on their front page, but social media actually makes that choice. So you have an article about Lindsay Lohan on the front page of the telegraph, because that's what the editor's interested in. But on page seven, um, there's a story about um, impending civil war in Côte d'Ivoire, for example. If the <coughs> Twitter sphere, if social media reckons that the Côte d'Ivoire story, one can only hope, is more important than the Lindsay Lohan story, that will be your front page of the day. That will get all the hits, that will be what is pushed out there. So there has been, so in a sense, citizens, the public, has now taken control, to some extent, of the of distribution <coughs> as well. Um, and they've also done much more than that. It's not just choosing what they like. They've also actually made stories. Many of you will remember the story of uh, Trafigura, the, the, the great Twitter story uh, of a year and a half ago, when Carter Rock, um, the PR firm, managed to get an injunction on The Guardian publishing details of Trafigura. Trafigura dumping waste in Chicote d'Ivoire. Um, they blocked it. The Guardian couldn't publish. The sphere got hold of this. Uh, within, within, within a matter of a couple of hours, uh, this hashtag Trafigura was trending on Twitter. Everybody was pushing this forward. The Spectator got a little snippet of it and hadn't been under the same injunction. And 20, not even 12 hours later, Carter Rock and Trafigura dropped their case to allow the Guardian to publish it. Alan Ruskruszew, the editor of The Guardian, called this a massive own goal. It was a massive own goal, but it's also an old goal set up, very much laid out by by Twitter and by citizens making that kind of story. Um, A silly side example, but um, I saw a piece in the LA Times last night which said that um, you can actually see this working in a very 1.0 way citizen news distribution. Um, There's there's a great piece in in the LA Times describing this man from Tobruk who takes uh, bucket loads of CDs and cell phone data, etc um and carries it over the border uh, into Tunisia from uh, from Tobruk where he can start where he can push this stuff out. So he's actually taking true citizen media, um, throwing it in the boot of his car, driving home many hours and getting it out. So that, I suppose that's a that's a that's a silly story. But um, but it but again, it's one more way in which um, the people are involved in news distribution. Um, finally, on this, on this, um, I also want to talk about um, news production because I think that um, what we've also seen is that citizens, normal people, non-journalists, are involved. If they are involved in news, um, in news sourcing and news gathering, and they're involved in news distribution, their mere involvement in the news process has also changed the way news is now told. Um, there are uh, there are good things to this, and there are bad things to this. Um, online managers obsessing about about rankings and page rankings, who force their journalists to write titles with better SEO, uh, with, be- with better uh, with better SEO terminology, so they can be found more easily on Google, etc., is a bad thing. Um, a good thing <laughs> is this new form of journalism which. And obsessed with them at all and is only made possible by um, this social interaction, this interaction between pro and non-pro, which is the live blog. Um, the live blog comes into its own with uh, very, very fast, quickly unfolding uh, political um, and, and other situations. Um, but there are now more and more of these and what you see with, say, well actually just take Egypt again, Egypt um, two, three weeks ago when there was a, there was a Minute by minute live blog of what was going on in Tahrir Square or the UK election where Andrew Sparrow, um, political editor there, was writing, I think, like 14,000 words a a day or something unimaginable, pushing all this content through. What you see in the live blog is essentially a news article unstitched. It's chronological. You have um, YouTube videos, you have um, Twitters, you have tweets, you have Every so often you even have a report from a professional staff journalist. It all in this stream of information. Um, and it is left in its raw original form for, um, for the reader to conjugate uh, themselves. And the reason that I'm as excited as I am about the live blog is that it also it also talks to perhaps the most fundamental shift. In the way citizens participate with media, is that um, they've scaled the ivory towers. They're not. They're no longer readers. They're no longer. Uh, they're no longer the passive consumers of this information. They're heavily involved, as we've just been describing. Um, and they are heavily involved, actively, insofar so far as they comment and they, they they tweet and they they distribute and they Facebook and they do all these other things. Um, but they're also um, in the process. What they've just well, what I think what has happened is that they've also got much better at reading. When, when you don't have a trusted media brand, when you don't buy The Guardian or The Telegraph or The Times religiously every morning because your information is coming into you unbundled via social media, via RSS feeds, via SEO on Google, via all these different mechanisms, you are forced to contextualize um, much, much more deeply than I think you ever have been before. There is, as, as many of you will know, there's br- ever dwindling trust in mainstream media brands. The Pew Research Center in the US every year comes out with, with uh, does these polls and sees that um, even the top uh, record brands, uh, like the New York Times, they're, 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 the, the trust element of them has been falling off a cliff recently. Um, what's happened is people are telling their own stories, they're building their own stories themselves. Mm-hmm. They take the RSS feed. They take their friends' Facebook link. They take their tweet, their, their Twitter feed, and they build these stories themselves. They read for context just as much as they read for content, and that's that's very sophisticated. and And everybody's doing it. And what it has allowed people to do, what it has allowed, finally, journalists to do, is to write for that. And I think the live blog, fairly for me, represents exactly that kind of writing. It credits the audience with a kind of intelligence and an understanding of the process of news making, which, um, which we haven't really seen before. Um, I'm happy to talk about Egypt now, or can we can talk about Egypt. Why you just say uh, two minutes about Egypt, because we've had an awful lot of discussions about Egypt within the Institute. It'd be great to have your oh, take on okay. it. So I, just, I, was, I'm gonna, I really want to talk about how we've dealt with Egypt because the way we dealt with Egypt as a news gathering operation which relies on social media and on large numbers of people to supply us their content has, is, is really structurally different from the way we dealt with anything before. So in Iran, 09, June 09, um, when we were getting material out of Iran, we did all of that via anonymous Google accounts. We were setting, we were pushing people towards proxy servers. We were doing our best to uh, hide them from us from each other, but it was all pretty much email, the way we communicated with them. What's been absolutely fascinating with Egypt is that I've done, we, our little team has done everything through Twitter. So we have a community of followers on, uh, on our demotics account, and I personally do in Egypt. Um, they follow us, we follow them, we know how they work. Um, and we ran essentially a news gathering HQ, but also a sort of safety advisory HQ, from our direct messaging and, and Twitter accounts. Um, we, I would get an email or a tweet in, a direct message in to me saying, guys, um, I hope you realize that the safest place in the Middle East today is Tahrir Square, because there is uh, a million eyes on it, and there is safety in numbers. And where everybody's getting beaten up is on the entrances and exits of Tahrir Square. Um, so I, uh, an old friend of mine who's a war reporter uh, pinged that over to me. That then went out to our feed of followers, they started then tweeting it out for themselves. You end up building what is essentially a, um, yeah, uh, an HQ, a sort of a news gathering um, HQ, all of which, all which, all of which, all, of it, all of it through Twitter. That's been fascinating for us. Um, the second thing that um, we might, I if you probably talked about this, and it's not really my place to talk about it, but um, one of the other things which is fascinating for me uh, looking at Twitter. Um, uh, looking at Twitter, looking at Egypt and Tunisia uh, and Yemen um, and Bahrain and even Jordan and Syria has been how flat the um, protest structures are, um, and uh, as, as far as we understand, um, and how pyramidal uh, the news, uh, the, the communication structures are. So there are certain. Uh, figures in uh, the blogging movement in Egypt, for example, who are uh, true spokespeople for and who are real heroes of this particular movement without having any particular political power. And we don't really understand how political power has played out in in Egypt and elsewhere, because it's so flat. And that is perhaps something which is interesting to talk about uh, in the context of these protest movements and what social media does. Social media does absolutely flatten authority structures. Um, And there are enormous advantages to that. Insofar so far as it's much harder to co-opt the leadership. So if you remember when Mubarak was supposed to be having meetings with the leadership of the opposition, everybody turned around and went, well, who the hell are these people? We don't know, there is no such thing as a leadership of this opposition. You can't co-opt them. On the flip side, as we've seen in Tunisia and we're seeing in Egypt and who knows when we see it elsewhere, um, it's also extremely difficult to take political decisions if you've got no pyramid structure to take them. So we've seen this mass confusion in Tunisia over the last three weeks. That who's going to take what position? How, who, who has the right to advance a political opinion? Who's going to do the who's going to do the horse training? So um, that's been fascinating for me as a counterbalance to this very visible media pyramid, um, which, as I say, starts from the, 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 the streets and then moves up to CNN or everyone to talk about it. Um, two other two other provisors and then I'll stop. Uh, the first is that. Um, And this was even more the case in Iran-09 than it has been recently. But it's always critically important, for me certainly, to remind myself what the social media demographic is. Um, In Iran-09, everybody got hysterical about this mass movement of people trying to topple the mullahs or whatever they were describing them as. Um, When... I think something like 05 percent of the population um, had even had heard of Twitter. I think it was 03 percent of the population had a Twitter account. Point 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 three. Yeah. Um, so these are very very restricted demographics. Um, we must not get. We're not. We must never allow ourselves to, to forget that. Um, and the second massive proviso to all this, this stuff about social media and power, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is that um, I was at a panel at the Frontline Club a couple weeks ago with Jackie Rowland, who was, um, who was with Al Jazeera English and was in Egypt for this, whole pro- for this whole period. And she had a great comment. Um, you'll remember that for two days, um, all phone communication was, was, was killed. And for one day, um, they killed the Internet. So there was no social media at all. Her fascinating language uh, about this is that when there was no more internet and when there was no more phones, you know where people went to go and get their information? They got it in the streets. So um, there, it, there, there is a suggestion that, um, and, and she wasn't saying this, but there's, a, there's an amusing irony uh, about the image of a whole bunch of people involved in a mass social protest doing it from the quiet, quiet of their own uh, computers rather than actually doing it. Anyway, sorry, I've spoken for a long time. Um, and um, I'm happy to Thanks. Thanks very much. It's uh, great.